Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Father Brian Mullady. He entered the Dominican Order in 1966 and was ordained in 1972. Father has a doctorate in sacred theology from the Angelicum University in Rome. He's the author of eight books, including the book we're going to talk about today that just recently published called A Primer on Fundamental Moral Theology. Father, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I really enjoyed the book. And you know what? It's it's very appropriate in which in the time in which we live, because we have people injecting feelings into everything and watering down morality to the point where you know, if, if, if we don't want to make anybody mad, right, we want to let everybody do what they want to do and let their, you know, as Jimmy, the Jiminy Cricket used to say, let your conscience be your guide. And this book really does help, I think, go in depth in terms of how important it is. And, you know, really, I, I enjoyed the start of the book and the introduction, uh, the, you know, the dichotomy you kind of present when it says man is both servant and free. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit to remind people of of just who we're called to be and that and that freedom that we're given. Uh, well, that's the subtitle of the book. Yeah. And it actually comes from a quotation from St. Augustine that John Paul II used in Splendor of Truth. And we're free because we have a free will, but free will is meant to be guided by reason. And it's that which makes us a servant. Christ, of course, talked in the gospel passage during the Lent today, about he didn't come to change the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And as a result, the prerequisite for prayer is that we conform to the commandments, and that's the servant part. So unfortunately today, people have tried to play off freedom. John Paul II talks about an exalted concept of freedom against truth, and you can't play them off. They go together. That's what makes free will. Uh, free will is reason which guides the will. So both are necessary. It's always disheartening when I hear people say, you know, the church is nothing but a set of rules and all those things. And, it, you know, it reminds me of the analogy, you know, uh, a dog and a leash. Like if you come home after a long day and bring the leash to your dog, he doesn't view that as as a constraint. He views that as his freedom keep him safe, you know, he keeps him safe when he goes out there, but he gets to go out into the world because of that safety net. And our teachings are kind of the same way. They they help protect us. But if we view them as this, these shackles, then we, we our whole perspective is off, isn't it? Yes, uh, but this all follows a flight that began in the late 60s. In fact, I realized when I was teaching Catholic high school in the 70s, that the big problem with our church was morals and people were trying to alter doctrine to fit their new moral stance. The flight was away from looking at reason as reflecting the innermost powers of our nature. And so what we're actually doing is becoming more free as we understand more concerning what the truth of the natural law, the moral law, or even the commandments are in Christ's teaching in the Old and New Testaments. And it's those things that set free will apart. Uh, people who commit sin, 
they you know, enslave themselves to a certain point of view, and they're not free, even though they interpret freedom as license. And they also interpret in some true statements concerning conscience as being the last judgment in morals as uh, constraining, because they don't realize that conscience is the application of our inner understanding of ourselves according to the way God has created us so that we can actually expand our character and fulfill what we were created to be. What you're explaining and, and talking about is, is what a well-formed conscience should look like. Yet when we tell people to, you know, follow your conscience, like, you know, unfortunately Cardinal McElroy and we see what's going on in Germany, right? They're, they're, ex they're allowing people to determine whatever they want without a well-formed conscience. And that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Yes, and it's the term well-formed that, that makes the essential difference. Uh, one cardinal just said, well, as long as a person is following their conscience, the priest should encourage and help him. And I said, okay, so my conscience tells me I'm supposed to fly a plane into the World Trade Center, and the priest is supposed to buy me the plane and pay for my flight lessons. No, it's the right conscience that obey, uh, prevails. And people who exalt the conscience as an oracle, which is what the term Pope John Paul II uses, want to make what I think, regardless of the world around me or any objectivity, the source of what the truth is, and I create the truth myself. This is very much in line with the philosophy of the last 200 years, where there was a flight away from the object to the subject. So everything becomes subjective, and there is no objective truth. That really leads to anarchy, doesn't it? Because when we live in this morally relativistic world, and everybody gets to decide uh, not only what their truth is, but they can change it each and every day if they chose to, right? It, it, oh, it just becomes chaos. Well, and in fact, that's what we're dealing with morally now. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, even pedophilia, you know, they say that was the last frontier. And I recently watched a news program where a little boy in the fourth grade or third grade was reading to the parents a book he found in their library, which exalted pedophilia. And they even justify in one book that was interestingly enough written in the late 70s, around the time John Paul was elected by priests in this country called Guidelines to Human Sexuality that even justified bestiality, as long as you feel loving about it. It's all your feelings that determine things. And no one can argue with your feelings, which is ridiculous. Yeah, but isn't that the big trap, right? When we're ruled by our feelings instead of our intellect, then we, we're basically on a roller coaster ride to do whatever we want. But that roller coaster ride, you know, you know, brings us in line with the evil one and, and takes us away from our love and our and our relationship with Christ. Right. Well, feelings and passions are important. They form a part of our soul that we share with the animals. But because we also have intelligence, it's possible for us to discriminate among our feelings or our passions so that we need to have well-formed passions and not give in to everything just because it feels right at the moment to do it. We have to, in fact, conscience 
in the traditional way of looking at things, Thomas Aquinas looks at it that way. The Pope looks at it that way. Interestingly enough, the catechism, without using the word, looks at it that way. is a syllogism of reasoning. And like every logical syllogism, it can be mistaken. You can have fallacy. The, princip- the principles can be fallacious. The way you organize them can be fallacious. So you need to realize that you have to get out of yourself and allow people to help you to quite understand the things that may be good in it, but if they're carried to the wrong extreme, will become very evil. Well, and I think what what this book really helps people do is to understand this truth, to understand the will, the intellect, and how all these play together. And, and it should help us ferret out when those in the hierarchy, you know, go astray and start saying things that, you know, should pique our curiosity to the point where we're saying, well, well, that's not right, right? Even even Pope Francis in Amoris Laetitia, when he goes into talking about the reception of communion and opening up to people who've been married or divorced, remarried without annulments and different things and allowing them to kind of judge, right? We, we need to be smarter than that. And when we see those things, we need to be able to identify those as wrong. Right? We can't be like lemming and just follow everything everybody says. We have to have that great understanding and, and knowledge of the truth and, and all these uh, more and the moral foundation of our lives, or we could be swept away. And, and then we really don't have an excuse because we did so without trying to grow in our own knowledge. Exactly. Because the virtue of prudence is not just following what someone else dictates to you mindlessly. The virtue of prudence helps you to understand more and more why certain things are right and why they're not, and not just use your, uh, if you exalt any one of the three powers that go into human choice, that's passions, reason, or will, without the other two, then you're uh, not going to be able to experience what it truly means to be a free human being. So people who exalt their passions wind up just serving their pleasures or pains of the moment, People who exalt their will and deny the intellect are mindless creatures that basically just do what they're told without any thought behind it. And people who just uh, exalt reason fail to realize that they have to be completed by love and the will. I think I use the analogy that the uh, mind is like the eyes of the soul and the will is like the feet. So all three of these things have to go together in a moral choice. And moral choices are very sophisticated. And I think people in things like abortion, um, many people, not all, well, they either have an agenda about it or they just don't want to think about any of these things. And they just do them because they solve a practical situation or problem they just don't want to recognize. Well, and that's how, you know, if anybody who works with people who are struggling, like we all have issues, right? When we when we go down that road and make those type of decisions without putting all three together, then it's easy to see how how people's lives can be such a train wreck, right? You get to the point where it's almost like a bowl of spaghetti. It's so tangled, because but it starts with that first step and they keep moving in that same direction. 
Absolutely. And the first step is, as Benedict says, the relativity of truth. Once you accept that, you're in. And uh, I remember um, one time I played a modernist for a class, and I had gone to school in Burke, Berserkly in the late 60s. You know, <laughs> I, I'd had my seminary training there, which was partially very good, but partially awful. Right. Morals, especially. Yeah. So that I began to they began to question me, and I just say, "Well, that was nice for two. Well, what about the Council of Nicaea? Well, that was nice for two twenty five, but we passed on from that. We live in a different world now. So to fit to our culture, we have to change the way we think about things. And they were so bad, they realized I wasn't a modernist by the time they finished. But I said, you know, all you have to do is accept the relativity of truth, and you're in. Um, related to what? To my selfishness or to uh, what the press tells me I should think or what the government tells me I should think or um, thinking is very important. Dominicans are very clear about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, and it all it's, it really becomes an arrogance, right? How many people do you, you hear, as you just mentioned? Well, we we've grown beyond that. We're so much more sophisticated. We're so much smarter. We know so much more. Yet all you have to do is read the Old Testament, and we do the same things over and over again that they did. Maybe the def- maybe the the subjects are a little different, but but the actions and the thought process are almost identical, aren't they? Well, I I don't know. I was once in charge of the money for a community of 110 friars from around the world, and as I was reading the readings from the Old Testament for Lent. I thought, gee, God must have known this community I'm living with now. <laughs> you know, why did why did we come out in this desert? We had leeks and we had garlic and all that back in Egypt. We were slaves. <laughs> Let's go back to Egypt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, you know, and what's what's the old saying? You know, for you know, for those you know, basically who do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result is the definition of insanity and. We, we tend to live in a culture now that uh, insanity tends to, to fit it quite well. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I, I feel like we're living in the screw tape letters uh, because good is bad and bad is good. I mean, everything has flip flopped. And if you try to defend morality, you're going to be attacked. And if people aren't strong enough in their knowledge and their faith and their convictions, they will be swayed and they'll just agree just so they don't have to deal with the pressure. That's very true. Very true. And when it comes to the hierarchy, well, that's very hard because that's why God created the hierarchy to give us a certainty about truth and especially the papacy. And I was reading an article recently where Alice Van Hildebrand, before she died, trying to deal with the present relationship of the hierarchy, said, I beg God to take me soon so I won't become confused. <laughs> well, we're all confused, but, you know, uh, and uh, I'm not confused about what the truth is, but I'm certainly confused about what's coming out of our hierarchy now. So, yeah, and, and their motive and their motives behind it. You know, you, you look at the world and you think the, the world should conform to the morality, the teachings of Jesus Christ. Yet we have those in the hierarchy at different levels uh, who want to try to make the church conform to society. 
And all you have to do is look at the German Senate that's going on and the craziness that keeps coming out of there. Uh, it yeah, almost seems like true. there's no end to the to the, uh, the craziness. Well, it makes one think that Nazism is not dead. And when you consider that they were the most educated people on earth and they embraced Hitler mm-hmm. and everything became relative to the Fuhrer's will, uh, you wonder what's going on. The Anglicans tried this and they just basically destroyed their church totally back in the 1930s. And we need to realize that uh, we're the only ones that are holding the, the banner and now some more fundamentalist Protestant sects in the United States for the family, for instance. And everyone knows that the family should be the nuclear family, the building block of all society. And yet many political groups and many others, all they want to do is destroy the nuclear family. They stated that. Well, and and you see all these groups that arise, right? We're going to, you know, destroy the patriarchy, whether it's Black Lives Matter, right? That was on their website at one point. So all these all these things that arise, they have to do that, right? They have to attack faith. They have to attack family. They have to attack foundations in order to get what they hope to achieve. Now, we know Christ wins the, the war, but geez, these battles aren't feeling too good, are they? No, they're not. Uh, I have no doubt that Christ will triumph in the end. But I look what happened at the Protestant Reformation. We did reach kind of a, you know, a peaceful modus operandi up to a point. But uh, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to gone through all those religious wars in all those countries when they were trying to um, c- come to some sort of thing where they could live together. Because the Catholic Church has always maintained this absolute nature of truth. You were talking, for example, about the the marital problem thing. You know, uh, even I, I don't quite understand why people don't notice this. Even if you could demonstrate privately in the confessional that the first marriage didn't exist, the person's still married outside the church. I mean, they're still having illicit sexual relations. So how could they possibly go to communion? any more than the person who's not married and having illicit sexual relations would go to communion. It's a, it's a um, you know, red herring in the whole discussion because the whole discussion turns around a philosophy that was very present in the church um, from certain authors I attributed to Karl Rahner, the Jesuit, where there was no objective nature and as a result, no objective morality. And he even came out in the end in favor of contraception. Uh, Some Dominican theologians who were very big Thomas before the council, one of them came out in favor of polygamous marriage in Africa because it fit the culture. And you wonder, how can you do that? Don't Don't you realize this is by Christ's will, you know, and it's what conforms to the nature of the world. But what? Well, not only that. Yeah, not only that, but we're leading people to sin, right? And we're leading people away from Christ. And you know, Christ warns us about about doing that. And you know, millstones are kind of heavy. And so, it it almost you wonder what goes through people's minds. Are they just 
wanting to be liked and be part of the culture and that supersedes anything else. It's hard to put yourself in the position of uh, watering down morality to try to gain public acceptance. Well, and also I think some of the places at the Vatican are politically motivated and they don't. Apparently some of them, including the head of the, the new head of the um, John Paul II Institute, which basically descends from what everything John Paul II taught yeah. about marriage and sexuality and ethics. They don't seem to care about any of that stuff. They want the changes they want. Why? I really don't know. I am. People ask you why this particular hierarchical official said this or this one. And I have to say, well, I don't know. You'll have to ask them. <laughs> because I, I frankly can't see how this helps. Um, and again, the confusion which is sown is great. The good thing is that I preach missions around the United States, and apparently the parishes just sort of go on. And some of the priests have given into this, but not all of them. Many of them are John Paul II priests, and they just sort of ignore it all. And uh, but then, so there's this whole level that works at one level. And for example, the new Senate in Rome. Uh, and then there's the common people that basically, I think they would be horrified if they realized some of the things that some of the people in the hierarchy do, like that cardinal, uh, or I guess he was a bishop in Italy. He was in charge of an important Vatican office that had all those gay pictures painted all over his sanctuary, including himself practically with only his yep. ghetto on in erotic positions. And you want to say, well, can you go to mass and look at that? I mean, gee, what is going on? You know? So. Yeah. It, it does feel like we're living kind of in an alternate universe. Um, and I guess it just reminds us, you know, again and again and again, how important it is to be rooted in Christ, to be, to be rooted in the, you know, those moral foundations, his, you know, the truth, his teachings, because when we're not, we're going to get bombarded. It's almost like, you know, you're in the boat and the storm is rocking and you're just saying, whatever you do, don't get out of the boat because it, even though if the captain may seem a bit crazy, we know Christ is ultimately in charge. Well, that's true. And, and as the, some people may find out, if they carry this too far, and I, I truly believe Pope Francis realizes this, the more you undermine the authority figures, you undermine yourself if you're an authority figure. So uh, once, for example, in Anglicanism, when they made the king the head of the church, the original bishops that did that included a clause saving Christ's will. They thought that might help things. Well, it didn't. So they have bishops in the Anglican Church, but no one knows what they do. <laughs> you know, they don't yeah. have any authority to teach anything. They don't have any authority to appoint bishops, uh, except what the crown at the moment or the parliament tells them to. And a person who begins to undermine the papacy, for instance, or the office of bishop, if they're bishops themselves, they may think they're gaining more power, but they're not. As one of our priests said concerning a liturgical change that wasn't correct, 
they tried to get him to change. And he said, no, wait a minute, let me get this straight now. I'm supposed to obey you, but you don't have to obey the Pope. How does that work? <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and also the papacy, they talk about the sense of census fidelium of the faithful, but that includes all the people that have gone before us for 2000 years too. So we have to look at the tradition of what our moral teaching has been and what its purpose is and not just think that, well, today what, uh, the Pope could wake up this morning and change everything. You can't do that. You can't change the nature of man. <laughs> yeah. can, can you imagine John the Baptist up in heaven like, I lost my head defending marriage, and now you guys are making it whatever you want, and you're blessing all these things. Have, have you lost your mind? I mean, he's got, you know, I know he said, you know, this euphoric state in, in the presence of Christ, but, you know, in the human sense, you, you think, good grief, he's got to be scratching his head thinking, what are you knuckleheads up to? Right. Well, he's not alone in it. Catherine of Aragon, you know, she, yeah. there's a great BBC special that was made in the 1960s on the wives of Henry VIII. And when she's dying, her lady-in-waiting looks at the ambassador for the emperor, and she says, was it all worth it? And he said, well, a kingdom rent asunder, a church divided, all because she wouldn't say she wasn't married when she was. <laughs> That's up to us to defend the little ones, you know. That's right. And not to just give in, you know. So. Well, again, I really enjoyed the book. It's it's a primer on fundamental moral theology from Sophia Institute Press. We're down to about the last minute. How can people get your other books and find out what you're up to, Father? Okay, most of my books are sold by Amazon, and EWDN has actually published some new ones or republished this. That this is a republishing. Um, there's also going to come one come out soon on social teachings of the church called Christian Social Order. And uh, to find out what I'm up to, just go on the internet and type it by my name. I do give parish missions, but I, I seem to have been eclipsed recently by all the young priests now. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and by the recession. But I do enjoy giving parish missions, and they can contact me either at the Western Dominican Province or at the moment, the Holy Rosary Church in Portland, which is where I live, although I could always be transferred from there. But if you contact the Western Dominican province, they'll send it to me. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.